0: this is don't learn to code a podcast presented to you by BP Logics welcome back to the podcast I'm Dale Franks
1: and I'm Bonnie Walker
0: and we are back after a uh, well it actually hasn't been a hiatus for us has it No because we're doing this what about every two weeks yeah right?
1: I think we're right on schedule
0: So we're right on schedule it, the uh...
1: what have you all been doing? <laughs>
0: I'll tell you what I've been doing. Uh,
1: tell me, Dale, what have you been busy with?
0: I've, I've been busy being in bed because I had an unexpected um, appendectomy last week.
1: And for those who don't know what an appendectomy is, it is when you remove your colon.
0: Well, just a little bit of it at the end, <laughs> the dangly bit at the bottom. Um, yeah, that caught me by surprise, and so I had that done Monday, and I've been in bed all week, but... I'm back this week, and we're back with the podcast. Yes, we are. Yay.
1: That is our commitment to you, the listener.
0: Although I do find that I have to lean back a little bit just to...
1: Yes, he sits like a king now.
0: Yeah, I have to (laughs) relieve a little pressure from uh, the way that they...
1: He has a very make-it-so attitude right now.
0: Yeah, so I'm (laughs) sort of leaning back. Actually, you know what? By the way, Mm. Enterprise uh, D, obviously the best captain's chairs. Yes. They were very... Plush. Very plush, very yeah. relaxing. You could
1: sit in that all day long. I, I believe that those might have even um, reclined if they had...
0: There is a guy in North Carolina who does new Star Trek episodes, but it's the original series, so they have new actors playing everybody. Okay. And this guy apparently is a fairly successful businessman in, in I think it's South Carolina or North Carolina. It's uh-huh. one of the Carolinas. <laughs> okay. And um, he actually spent the money to... to Rebuild an enterprise set. So he has the entire bridge. He has. Oh. You
1: know, he built
0: it from scratch.
1: He's living his best life, man. Is he a part of the show?
0: He plays Captain Kirk.
1: Of course he does. That is someone <laughs> taking cosplay to the next level.
0: Yeah, that's somebody who has enough money to do really intense cosplay.
1: I oftentimes think what I would do if I were an eccentric billionaire, and I can't say I wouldn't if I had the means. But I would do TNG. Of I, I would shave my head, <laughs> and I would sit there as like a new femme Captain Picard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Make it so. <laughs>
1: Make it so. T. Earl Grey hot.
0: That the the weird thing that Patrick Stewart used to do with his his fingers engage.
1: <laughs> yeah, but he can't do the single finger. Like if you do the single finger, it's it's kind of a weak. Spinstery action, so he doubled yeah, like up. Finger yeah, wagging. Yeah, like engage. You. you know, so you do the <laughs> double fingers, and it's manly, authoritative, which might or might not be a word. Gesture, Author- authoritative, authoritative, authoritative. I, think, <laughs> is, is what you do. I just put a British spin on it, and my made-up word takes on new class. <laughs> but
0: I've been thinking a lot about science fiction this week. Okay, um, not only because. I've been in bed and so I've watched a lot of it on uh, Amazon. I've watched the entire 3 seasons of The Expanse
1: this and, past week. And he regaled me as as to why I should listen to, or watch it as well. Oh yeah, and I if will you be have doing so. If you
0: have Amazon Prime, watch The Expanse. It's uh it's good science fiction.
1: Just a little plug
0: for The Expanse Just here. Just a little plug for We're uh, not for sure. getting
1: in residuals.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, Jeff Bezos, I want my money now. Um <laughs> And it's it's appropriate to start off talking about that because one of the things that um, our boss Scott Mentor talked about at BPM Next last week, and Scott is is vice president of. Uh,
1: Actually, I think it's chief strategy officer now. I think he is got it a, chief strategy yeah. officer yeah. now.
0: Oh, okay, so he got a he got a bump. He's he got, he's he was yeah, he, he was got a
1: little bump there. Yeah,
0: prior to that, he was the vice president of. Something pretty darn important. Um, <laughs> I think
1: that was the official title. I think that was the official title. So, okay,
0: Chief Strategy Officer. So he went to BPM Next last month. Yeah. And talked about something that still a lot of people think of as science fiction, even though we talk more and more about it nowadays, which is AI. Mm-hmm. And we're putting AI in process director in a number of ways and machine learning. And I teach business policy. It's the capstone course for business undergraduate in college. And one of the things that we talked about is AI. Mm -hmm. And I saw last year, there was a a prediction that sometime around 2035 to 2040, about half of all middle management jobs will simply be eliminated. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And if you are a trucker or a driver or something in the transportation industry, you may not have a job in 2035 either because of autonomous vehicles and cars. You know, Amazon is now talking about throwing out uh, drones to do delivery. Mm-hmm. So autonomous drones that will just fly around, drop in your front yard to apparently drop off a box. Um, of course, Uber and Lyft are talking about autonomous vehicles for doing their stuff. You know, even at, uh, what is it, um, fast food restaurants in Los Angeles and Seattle and and New York City, several other places. Uh, The entire front desk is now just kiosks. You don't actually deal with a human being. You just go in there and you just punch in your order and, you know, Mm -hmm. quarter pounder with cheese, hold the pickles, hold the
1: Yeah, you do that all over the place in Japan now.
0: And so who's doing those jobs? And the reason why I mentioned The Expanse was not just to give it a, a, um, a plug, but there's one scene in The Expanse where this is a show that takes place 200 years from now. Mankind has colonized the solar system. There's no warp drive or anything like that. But there is a visiting delegation from Mars who are on Earth, and one of the deputy undersecretaries of the UN is talking to them. She's talking to one Martian marine gunnery sergeant, and she says, you know, half of the people on this planet are on basic assistance. They have no jobs. It's not because they're lazy. It's simply because we don't have any opportunities for them. Mm -hmm. And so fully half the people on the planet are unemployed and Mm -hmm. they're just living on government assistance. And it doesn't make me wonder about the whole idea of AI because we are talking about getting rid of half of all middle management jobs and and half of all fast food jobs and Mm -hmm. all transportation jobs. What are all those people gonna do?
1: See, I think that all of those people, if if AI succeeds in meeting its promise and uh, we're able to accelerate it to the point where it is capable of the intelligence to take over those middle management positions and trucking and and all of the pieces you 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 were going over, i I feel like, yeah, they will. but that has been. A trend for the past 50 years where where automation of one one sort or another has destroyed industries and people have had to adapt and these positions are whatever the positions are have have disappeared and there have been you know, oh, what was it was it the not the printing press it was something else it was like the um, the early turn of the century, there was an automated something or other. It was like something to do with textiles, and the and the and the, and the people rioted.
0: A weaving machine that was yeah. That Neil uh, Nell Ludd and the Luddites. Right, who, the
1: Luddites exactly. They were smashing
0: the machines exactly because it would take their jobs. So
1: away. it's like every every I wouldn't say generation, but every period of time throughout the past, when was the, when were the Luddites? Let's say the turn of the 10th the century. The 1800s. Right. So there have been points where there has been some explosion of technology which has destroyed or disrupted an industry. Now, I agree that that is accelerating, and I agree that there might be a point where um, we aren't able to adapt as a culture to keep up with that. But traditionally or historically, we have. We have adapted. We have found new places to put these people.
0: Well, you know, you've got the, the, the tension between the Malthusian economists who say everything is going to be awful. We won't be able to feed ourselves. And I, I always think back to the 1970s and uh, Paul Ehrlich, who wrote a book called The Population Bomb, mm-hmm. which basically said, you know, by 1985, a billion people will be starving and there won't be enough food and it, there won't be enough raw materials. Everything is just going to go. Uh, basically head over heels yeah. into disaster. Right. And you know Thomas Maltus started in, in 1790 saying, yeah, this is everything is just uh, heading to, to heck in a handbasket. And there's always been that contingent who have always prophesied doom. Right. And then on the other hand, you have sort of the the Austrian uh, economic uh, community who say no, humankind has an unlimited amount of innovation built Mm -hmm. into them we think about things we fix things Mm -hmm. and most of us are doing jobs now that didn't exist 100 years ago right you know in the turn of the century in the united states the um, something like 86 percent of people in this country were engaged in ranching or farming right today that figure is below three percent so in 100 years we have transferred basically 82 percent of our population from agriculture into something else.
1: Right. So so we're we're I'm not going to say that people are inherently good or evil, but we are creatures of adaptability and we are creatures of desire. So there are going to be new places where people put those desires and there will be an innovation or an adaption that then creates jobs around those new areas. New places of convenience, which might oust jobs through artificial intelligence, and then new places of service, which might create jobs. So I feel like there will definitely be flux, but I am not convinced that there's going to be just you know a, a breadline of middle managers stretching around the block.
0: And- It has to be said, we work at a company that literally could not have existed 20 years ago.
1: Right. Right. I mean...
0: The the technology that that (laughs) supports everything that we do every day didn't exist in 1997, 1998, 1999. Yeah. Heck, it didn't even exist in 2000. I mean, (laughs) you know, this is a company that really the technology that enables us to do what we do really didn't exist until about 2007. So it's been... It's been interesting seeing things change. And before I worked here, I worked um, down at SAIC in La Jolla, Mm -hmm. which is a company that at the time had about 45,000 employees. And um, every single one of them were working in industries that didn't exist in 1970. Right. Right. Right.
1: And and you have to think about, like, fear sells. And, And goodness knows we're we're subjected to these these premonitions and these kind of clickbaity grabs and i'm sure that there are a great swath of people that earnestly believe that they are true the you know that the, there's going to be and and maybe it is true i think that what we're missing is the but but we have adapted we continue to adapt like to your point, you and I are sitting here gathering our massively lucrative paychecks in an in an industry that didn't exist in 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 its current form.
0: Indeed, we're recording a podcast, engaging in an activity that would have been impossible in 1997.
1: Exactly, exactly. So I guess that's that's my point about the kind of f- doom and gloom on the job market. Um, now, on the greater ethics point of AI and 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 machine learning and its, you know, capabilities or, or threats, that's a different ball of wax. But I, I have a slightly sunny outlook on in, in the future of eh, the job industry. I'm
0: I'm iffy on that. I'm I'm fifty fifty and I'll tell you why. Because you know, when we think of AI, we kind of think of it in the Star Trek sense of, you know, an intelligent, self aware computer, mm-hmm. right, that can create and make moral judgments for itself. Mm-hmm. And that's not simply what AI is and, and may not ever be mm. what AI is. And at the end of the day, AI is a programmer or a group of programmers writing down a bunch of math saying, okay, if A happens, then B, if mm-hmm. B, then C, if A and B, then D, and trying to to put into code these ethical decisions, and those ethical decisions always reflect the, the coders. But there are some ethical decisions that simply can't be reliably made by anybody.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I always think about the, the conundrum of the you know, autonomous vehicle. Well, there's some sort of traffic incident, and I'm driving my and the people who really love the whole autonomous thing more than probably anybody else in the world is Volvo. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, the, the, the question that gets asked of Volvo um, or one of their engineers actually posed was, okay, what happens if I go into, I'm on an icy road because apparently it snows in Sweden.
1: Oh, I've heard. Not something I've ever seen being here in Southern
0: California, (laughs) but but I'm reliably informed that there is a thing (laughs) called snow and it's difficult to drive on. And my car skids, starts to skid out of control and I have a limited number of corrective actions that my AI system in the car can make. I can't do it as a human being because I can't either react fast enough or perhaps I, I'm shocked or I, I freeze in the moment of action, whatever. And so now here are my choices. I can hit a school bus full of children or I can hit an elderly pensioner who's walking along the sidewalk. Pensioner. Is that the choice? Yes. Or is the utilitarian choice, well, if I kill the, you know, the, the okay, let's reverse it. What if it's a a bus full of pensioners on their way to a bingo game (laughs) and one child on the street? Okay. Then who do you hit? If you just go with a utilitarian, the greatest good for the greatest number, well, you hit the child and you kill the child so that you don't kill 30 pensioners on a bus. Hmm. Is that the correct choice?
1: Well, computers
0: aren't going to make that choice. Those choices are going to be made by the people who do the programming. Now, obviously, the computer can't tell. A Volvo won't be able to discriminate between somebody who's you know 15 years old and somebody who's 65. Well,
1: wasn't there recently um, a backlash around that where the you know machine learning components of some organization? What was it? Was it Amazon was it. It was some sort of organization for the onboarding was favoring men over women because it was reflecting the the uh, the hiring practices done by the organization itself. (laughs) Oh, great. So it was. And and I think that that is the you know, the, the thing to think about is because it isn't autonomous or even if it is and we do reach that point of sentience it's still going to be a reflection or an offshoot of our own moral code and our own moral code is flawed and subjected and or subjective and and is you know deeply troubled at times so you get this this piece of machinery that that then says all right well um we're going to hire you know 19% women, because that is what we've been trained to do against the data set that exists.
0: Or in our industry, I think the the actual percentage in computer science, I think the actual percentage of bachelor's degrees that were awarded for computer science last year, men versus women, was something like 12% women Mm -hmm. and 88% men. Mm -hmm. Do we reflect that? Now, that's a reflection of reality. And, right. And, you know, why is the disparity in gender in this particular industry so high? Right. How do we correct that disparity? Um, the, the trouble with AI and programming is, like in the case that you mentioned, we sort of code in sort of the facts on the ground now. Right. Rather than some desired state in the future. Mm-hmm because we have no way of knowing whether reality will ever meet that desired state. Mm-hmm. And so what is your responsibility as an AI programmer for that sort of decision-making? How, how do you square that circle? And I, I don't know what the answer is. You know, the interesting thing about these ethical questions in AI is that there are well there's certainly wrong answers mm-hmm. it's certainly possible to say that this answer is definitively wrong mm-hmm. but it, it's very difficult to say whether an answer is actually right or not
1: well and you think about you're training against dis- you training against data and you're training against what has been so you say this is what has happened to allow the organization or the individual or whoever to make more informed but informed oftentimes means safer decisions so do, what does that mean for innovation or the ideal or what you desire you're talking about should we train to, should we have something built to the reality that we want as opposed to what exists and and it, it's these questions of of
0: And if you build it to the reality you want will reality ever actually comply with your desire?
1: Right. So it's it's a tough it's a tough line to walk. Where I'm not saying that you know training against back data means that you're living in the past. Not at all. But it does bode the question is like if you want to be a, a an organization that takes risks and and moves in a kind of uh, pioneering direction, how do you break free from from the the information that could potentially lead you to maybe safer, less risky steps you know what i mean there's
0: that and i think the other question is how do you ensure that you don't miss a fundamental market change that directly affects whether or not you'll be profitable whether you can stay in business whether your consumer tastes have changed consumer preferences have changed i Mm -hmm. mean you know we've we've talked sort of humorously offline about (laughs) ads from the 1940s 50s and 60s um we don't buy the same stuff that we bought in the '40s, '50s, and '60s. Right. Um, there was a fundamental shift in America. Smoking is a great idea. Oh, it's not a great idea, but it's a great <laughs> example. Um, <laughs> back in the 1950s and 1960s, there, one of my favorite is is there's a, an ad for Camel cigarettes,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is like four out of five doctors recommend <laughs> the Camels for their <laughs> patients who smoke. I'm not entirely sure that's true, but it was certainly believable at the time, at a time when, what, something like 75 80% of the American public smoked cigarettes? Right. That really changed a lot in the 70s. You know, between 1970 and 1985, Mm -hmm. now that was a fairly long period, but that was a 15-year period in which basically people pretty much stopped smoking. Right. In our recent history, we had a period in the 1990s we went from no one ever had a computer to by 2000, everyone having a computer. Now, that's a major consumer demographic shift in terms of products that they're buying. Mm-hmm. If I'm still programming in, well, this is what happened in the 1980s, do I miss that in my AI? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's always the thing about AI. People simply don't realize that AI can only respond to what it knows.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I don't think that AI... The way that we've currently built it now, I just don't think it's agile enough to to match fundamental shifts in the economy and in the way that people do things.
1: Yeah, and so it goes back to what you were talking about as far uh, at the beginning of um, the episode, as far as you know, them AI being able to take the place of middle management is is <laughs> I guess you, it's what is the role of a middle manager and does that middle manager um, it, reliant on just data of the past (laughs) you know what i mean or or making these safe intelligent predictions because that's uh that's uh might be an insult to to the middle managers of the world
0: oh so you're saying that middle managers may have more experience and more real world acumen that is important in things other than just making Uh, decisions about oh let's sell this let's sell that. Yeah
1: I am making that suggestion middle managers uh, unite
0: (laughs) well I I also saw something that may give us at least a bit of a guideline Mm. here and I had it up on my machine so the reason that my voice is bad is because I'm trying to look in two different directions at once But let me pop this up if indeed it can be popped well, if I hit the right mouse button, it'll pop.
1: Well, your mouse is like 15 buttons. It looks like a, its own starship. So <laughs> I, I, I have, <laughs> that's your I have problem. A, I
0: have a pretty uh, complex mm-hmm. mouse.
1: My mouse is like, you know, you can buy it out of a vending machine.
0: So Gibson Dunn, uh, a law firm that, that works a lot in tech, has a really, really long white paper on AI and artificial intelligent ethics and how to use them. You know, artificially intelligent ethics in policing.
1: Mm.
0: If I'm in a a major American city, I'm probably going to have a racial disparity in arrests, in crimes, and in convictions. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: How do we ensure that we don't codify that into an AI system? Right. There has to be some way. There There has to be, I think, some set of guidelines that everyone needs to start thinking about and needs to start agreeing on, a process, (laughs) exactly, for how to do AI and how to do it properly. And as it turned out, Gibson Dunn had a couple of good ideas about how to do that and how to, uh, and they came up with seven things that they think that is pretty important for AI to work. Um, The first is human accountability or human agency and oversight not to let these things just run autonomously, but to ensure that people have to approve everything that we do. And they talk about other things like transparency. What are my algorithms doing? One of the problems, I think, with many AI systems today, and and Google is notoriously um, bad at this, is saying this is what our AI things do. This is how the algorithm works. These are the things that we're measuring. People need to know that. Up front. and I think a lot of companies, uh, and like I said, Google is is an egregious violator on this. They just don't let us know what that AI is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I see certain things happen, so it becomes obvious to me. For example, um, I, for whatever reason, I, I rarely go to our own company's website. I think I have some measure of insight into what's going on in the company. Sorry. Whereas
1: I live on that website. <laughs> I have my my second home is on that website. But
0: here's what I notice. If I go to the BP Logics website, like at home, mm-hmm. my, my private computer, and I'll go to BP for whatever reason, working from home or whatever, and then the next day I pop open my computer and I go to some other website, and for if, for whatever reason I have Adblock turned off and it gets turned b- back on. And what do I see? I see ads for BP Logics mm-hmm. in all my banner ads. Okay, so I know that they're tracking me, and I know we just they, want
1: you to know. <laughs>
0: <yeah>. <laughs> but that tells spread me spread the
1: good word. <laughs> but
0: that tells me that Google is tracking me, and that Google does know where I've been, mm-hmm. and that it is. So I can see that. But what is the other stuff Google is doing? They did a an experiment last year where they actually had two AI systems, and they set up a community that, that, that had never talked to each other and didn't know how to talk to each other. And so what they did is they connected them together to see what happened. And it took about a day and a half. And at the end of a day and a half, both of those systems were sending data back and forth to each other. And the engineers at Google had no idea what they were talking about.
1: <laughs> it's like, let's real quick burn this real quick. <laughs> let's, they just, had, t- let's just take these systems out to the beach and burn them real quick. <laughs> the,
0: the two systems had, using the algorithms that they were given, had, co- had created a communications protocol. And began exchanging data.
1: Well, they're building the first gen Cyberdyne <laughs> systems <laughs> <Yeah>. model 101. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm that's, that's what everybody was afraid of. And they,
0: of course, they shut down both of those systems. But you know, this idea of transparency and knowing what your systems are doing, if we're afraid of Skynet, that's about as Skynet y as mm-hmm. we've gotten mm-hmm. in recent years, where you have two AI systems who are talking to each other and you have no idea what they're talking mm-hmm. about because they've created their own communications modality to talk that you don't know what it is.
1: And I think that that is going to be the piece that creates the, you know, the true AI, right? So is that, would you consider that to be a form of consciousness or a form, like what is, they're communicating, they're communicating with a means that's independent of human intervention or interpretation, and they are doing it fluidly and dynamically. Did... And then we unplugged it. Yeah,
0: well, and then well, we
1: nipped that in the bud. Yeah, what's <laughs>
0: what's the dividing line between regular algorithm driven AI and self aware AI?
1: And and uh, is self awareness meaning that they communicate with us? <laughs> because self awareness
0: means that they are aware of <laughs> themselves as an entity. Right. You know, there's a there's a uh, a video game called Mass Effect, and one of the uh, sort of main plot lines in, in the, the series of Mass Effect games, is an alien race called the Quarians, who built a whole bunch of robots that were called the Geth. And these robots, as it turned out, they figured, you know what would make these guys way more efficient? Is we let them network with each other whenever they're in proximity. So the more Geth that were in proximity, hey, they could sort of you know build their intelligence and they could distribute you know information sharing and things like that and, and task performance between everybody, by having wireless communication with them all. This seems like a great idea. And everybody thought it was a great idea until one of the Geth said, Creator, does this unit have a soul? In which case, they tried to kill all the Geth immediately (laughs) and ended up losing that war and being thrown off their home planet. That's the thing that, you know, do we know? Do we have any good idea about where that line is?
1: But isn't it just...
0: And I don't think we do. And I think there's a lot of... uh, I think there's a lot of optimism around it that, well, who cares, AI, Yeah, we'll know when it's truly self-aware, we'll know what the line is that we can't go past to stop, to avoid creating Skynet. I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure you know where that line is or ever can.
1: Well, and I feel like the it's a little bit of hubris to think that their sentience is contingent upon our recognition. if they communicate back and forth they're creating their own language they're creating their own you know means of self-identity and awareness are we going to know are they going to even care to inform us (laughs) are we going to even be acknowledged by them I think there's this implicit sense of oh well they'll defer to us and let us know and they will communicate their their Master, do I have a soul? But perhaps they don't give a flying fig about or even know who we are in the sense that we're these little fleshy beings that they should reach out up from their world into ours and say, hey, by the way, I have a soul. You know what I mean? Like it could be that they just do their own thing, chug right along until they realize that we're present many, many leagues down the line from from that inception of um, of soul.
0: Yeah, I mean we have trouble recognizing – heck, we have trouble recognizing other people as being intelligent and self-aware. Exactly. Much less dolphins or dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, What would an artificially intelligent life form think about us? Would it regard us as... Anything other than perhaps a bright animal,
1: right? And what would it have to do for us to recognize it, to for us to think of that in that form of consciousness as our parameters of sentience? If we don't look at something as like a whale, who or an elephant, which might be arguably as you know close to human style intelligence, albeit different, like we don't recognize them as sentient for many in many groups so this this artificial intelligence might have a complete different form of consciousness and a complete different way of self-actualizing and and we just might be tooting right along going like I'd like to order my pizza via drone
0: (laughs) And, and we 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 tend to have a habit mankind I say tends to have a habit of just whenever something new comes along just jumping into it with both feet right saying well this thing is great let's just do as much as we can with this okay fine I get it please bang on the microphone. sorry more. That was, I um, tried
1: to drink some water because it's so hot in here
0: ah, this <laughs> office is awful whenever the door gets closed <laughs> and I, I was just thinking you know maybe and I don't know where the oversight would come from because I always get uncomfortable with government oversight because I'm not one of those people who thinks, well government makes everything better <laughs> um no. Nah, I mean, you know, if you need a lot of Nazis killed, government's a good way of going around it. <laughs> if you need to figure your way out of, you know, mushy ethical quandaries, I'm not sure that government is the best organization that helps you with
1: well, that. Well, government is notoriously behind on technological, like... Um,
0: uh... No, unfortunately, not as much as you think. Because while we're sitting here talking about these abstract ethical questions about whether my Volvo is going to hit the bus full of children mm-hmm. or the pedestrians on the sidewalk, the U.S. Army is sitting there thinking, you know what would be great with mm-hmm. autonomous drones putting guns and missiles on
1: them <laughs> we need a bigger motor
0: hmm <laughs> I'm not sure that's a great thing to do with drones. Autonomous drones that have guns <laughs> on them. Mm. I'm not entirely sure that that's a reliable idea. And yet it, it tends to be sort of the, the thing that we do. We just sort of jump right into it. Sure. Which brings up one of the other things that Gibson Dunn has talked about in terms, of, and I have to turn around because I have to read this. They've talked about and two things. Number one, diversity, non-discrimination, and fairness. And number two, societal and environmental well-being. And number three accountability
1: and someone or something in being-
0: someone being accountable some person being accountable so so those three ideas I think are some some pretty good starting points it may be kind of hard to to figure out you know the accountability part is easy but you know social well-being diversity and non-discrimination I mean what if we're just trying to figure out what the delivery routes are for UPS trucks? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, those two things aren't very big. But if you're talking about about putting missiles on autonomous drones, I think those two things are kind of important. And, you know, police departments are talking about, oh, well, how about having sort of autonomous law enforcement drones mm-hmm. that can observe and report? Mm, what are they going to be observing and what are they going to be reporting? Mm-hmm. and How do we know that societal well-being is place at the forefront of those kind of ai applications Mm -hmm. and the weird thing is i'm 54 right so all of this was just complete utter science fiction to me when i was a kid well now it's actually real now these are things that people actually have to start thinking about and i'm not sure either as an industry or as a, a country as a whole or as a civilization. We're thinking deeply enough about these ethical issues.
1: And if we are, the thought and the innovation are happening happening in pockets, and those pockets are not overlapping. So <laughs> the people who are innovating aren't necessarily the people who are reflecting.
0: Yeah, and the people who are innovating, well, they tend to be tech people. Right. And tech people tend to fall somewhere on what is <laughs> colloquially called the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And maybe tech people aren't the best people to be making these decisions either. And I, 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 I don't know who is.
1: And to quote jo- um, Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park. Alright, <laughs> now I'm gonna have to think of the quote. We are so busy trying to um, find out if we could, we never stopped to what was Ask it? Ask if we should. There you go.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and we're really busy now finding out if we can. Mm-hmm. And look, we're we're just as involved in that mm-hmm. as anybody else. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're kind of in a safe space with business process management. You know, is this mm-hmm. process going to be we're late? Gonna or Is it going to be guns early? on
1: that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's see what happens to that. <laughs> We're going to do
0: armed vacation requests. Uh,
1: <laughs> you better be back in time.
0: <laughs> but for other things that actually do have effects on public safety military uses, police uses, mm-hmm. heck, even vehicle uses. Mm-hmm. If I've got an 18 wheeler rolling down the road with eight tons of goods on it, I want to be pretty sure that that thing's going to stay in the center of its lane mm-hmm. and that if something does go wrong and there's icy conditions or whatever, that it responds appropriately, it responds appropriately to traffic. And all of that, I, I guess the other problem that, that comes up with it, I, I just don't know how you solve, is the problem of chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to put a bunch of sensors in a, a lane, right? And say, okay, follow these this line, stay right in the middle of it, You'll stay in your lane, have a little radar thing that bounces ahead, ensure that you don't come within 450 feet or 250 feet at this speed of some other vehicle so that you have adequate time to stop. Okay, all that is great. Now, what do you do when a deer jumps across the road?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What's the response to that? You know, the world is full of chaotic events that happen without notice and without warning, and it overwhelms us. I'm not sure that that it won't overwhelm an AI system either.
1: Yeah. No. Or you know you talk about every time something is is automated in that way, it could conceivably be corrupted by nefarious forces and and that brings its own set of issues as well, where like okay, you have this eighteen wheeler barreling down the road.
0: We haven't even talked about the security issue.
1: Exactly.
0: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Vehicles alone open up a huge security hole. Why? Because every single vehicle uses the CAN bus system for accessing the engine control unit Mm -hmm. and everything else that the vehicle does. Okay, great. There were a couple of guys in San Francisco, a couple of hackers, who just pulled out a laptop, hacked into a, a, I think it was a Dodge trucks cam bus system and just send it hurtling off the side of the road right just for the heck of it right if we're going to have these systems in addition to ensuring that these systems work fine and that we have this you new know, transparency accountability um diversity and non-discrimination and you know, societal well-being and all these other things that we're thinking about um how about security
1: exactly that's i feel like
0: and I'm not sure that, that is not. Yeah, it's not on the even, list. <laughs> even, even that they mention
1: Yeah, I feel like that it, it has to be con- secure, and then that's I don't see on your on your list of um, Gibson Dunn uh, points.
0: No, they appear to have left off security in this rather long. Uh, the, this rather long thing about this AI. law
1: firm believes in the inherent good of humanity. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I suppose it's good that someone does.
1: <laughs> I know, right? Certainly isn't this but, person. But
0: security is a big problem too. How do we ensure that somebody doesn't subvert our systems exactly remotely?
1: And I feel like that's going There's gonna be. Uh, you talk about where middle management is is gonna go. I believe there's going to be a massive boom in in security in private enterprise and how you can have personalized, personalized or semi personalized kind of security measures around your vehicle your your house your possessions your you know and and it'll be its own industry and we will be able to privatize that in in a way that you can upload your whatever it is your set of this is and that's to protect your family and and put it in the reins of the consumer see
0: you say that And then the FBI comes out and asks Apple, hey, why don't you give us a backdoor to every iPhone? I mean, just in case. Right. Just in case we need to get into it. Okay. Look, I I understand that request, whether I agree with it or not, is immaterial. I understand the reasoning behind the request. And what the FBI hasn't seemed to figure out, well, if I give you a backdoor, I've just given everyone in the world mm-hmm. a backdoor mm-hmm. you know it's it's the same time it's the same thing that you come up with with these concerns for encryption and whatever okay yeah we'll let you proles have encryption but you got to give us a key to it so that we can get into it well why have encryption if i give you the key to it i've, I've essentially given it to everybody
1: right so the future will look like the backdoor will be in the end sequence of The Matrix, or actually the end of the second act, <laughs> where you have that elevator, and then you have Neo and you have Trinity coming through with their weaponry. And the personal enterprise security measures will be all those nameless, faceless, <laughs> uniformed people that they have to gut th- cut through to get to that back door.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Anderson.
1: Exactly. We need our Smiths.
0: <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, it's a really fascinating it's a really fascinating subject. It's a fascinating topic. Like I said you know, when we first started, there, there are no good answers. There are certainly some bad answers, but there are no good answers. But I would feel a lot more comfortable if I felt that a lot more people were taking it seriously and were thinking more deeply about these issues than I've seen people think about them so far. And as near as I can tell so far, nobody's really thinking a lot about the ethical issues behind it. Like you said, we're so concerned about whether we we can do this stuff, but nobody's actually thinking about whether we should. And thinking about should, I think, is should be an important part of the conversation going forward.
1: Thank you, Jeff Goldblum.
0: Thank you. Yes. thank you, thank you, Jeff Goldblum and Steven Spielberg for giving us an out cue for today's podcast. This has been Don't Learn to Code. I'm Dale Franks. And I'm Bonnie Walker. And we'll look forward to speaking to you again on the next episode. Until then, have a great couple of weeks, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. So long. Bye.